0: Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Today, Season 3, Episode 4, Passchendaele. The 26th of October 2017 marks the 100-year anniversary of the beginning of the Second Battle of Passchendaele, though amongst most Canadians it is simply known as Passchendaele. The Second Battle of Passchendaele was in fact the culminating attack during a larger offensive known as the Third Battle of Ypres, fought from July to November 1917. Vague and unrealistic objectives, absolutely horrendous battlefield conditions combined with shockingly high casualty rates would overshadow the Canadian Corps' success in capturing Passchendaele Ridge and the destroyed village that bore its name. In fact. Passchendaele would come to symbolize all that was terrible, traumatic, and tragic about the war on the Western Front. This episode's book recommendation is Passchendaele, The Sacrificial Ground, by Nigel Steele and Peter Hart, published in 2000 by Castle. Though not exclusively about the Canadian effort, it is an excellent read about the offensive as a whole and utilizes a plethora of primary sources to really give the reader a sense of the horror that was this battle and the controversy surrounding it. A reminder, you can find us on numerous platforms, iTunes podcast, SoundCloud, and Facebook, just by searching Cool Canadian History. If you happen to access us via iTunes, please leave us a rating or a comment. We love to hear your feedback on the show. If you find us on Facebook, please give us a like and a follow so we can keep you up to date with all the goings-on of Cool Canadian History. You can also now find us on our YouTube channel by simply searching Cool Canadian History. You can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris. that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S, and you can always find us at our homepage, www.coolcanadianhistory.com. All our podcast episodes are there for you to browse. This podcast relies solely on the patronage of listeners like you, and there are two ways by which you can donate to the podcast. One is on our homepage. You see at the very bottom of our homepage, there is a donations tab, courtesy of PayPal. By clicking on it, you can safely and securely donate to our podcast. You can also do so via Patreon, where you can set up a monthly donation or make a one-time donation depending on your flavor. Find us at patreon.com slash cool canadian history that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n and of course the links for both of these donation methods are available on our facebook page thank you for your continued support. Okay to begin with we need to understand the strategic picture that sets the background for the Canadian participation in what was known broadly as the third battle of Eaps. You see In 1917, the British held a salient around the town of Ypres in Belgium. A salient they had pretty much held since 1914. A salient is essentially a large bulge into enemy lines and often makes the army holding the salient vulnerable to attacks from multiple sides depending on how far the salient extends into enemy territory. In this case, the British were holding the salient and were thus vulnerable. Because the British had held this salient since almost the beginning of the war, the area known as the Ypres Salient was the site of numerous battles and untold numbers of casualties. The front had for the most part remained fairly stagnant, and both sides had thrown men and material at each other in countless efforts to attempt to push each other back. The plan for the Third Battle of Ypres was drawn up by Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig, who was the supreme commander of the British Expeditionary Force, known as the BEF. The BEF included both British and Commonwealth troops fighting on the Western Front. His objectives for the offensive involved a large-scale attack that would advance the British front line so that the Ypres salient was not so deep into German territory, basically eliminating the bulge of the salient. As well, Haig hoped to break through the German lines at key points, and move up to secure the Belgian coast, capture German submarine bases along the coast, and then link up with the Dutch frontier. As well, fears at this time of a Russian withdrawal from the war due to the Russian Revolution that had recently started, put pressure on the Anglo-French alliance to strike a devastating blow against Germany before her eastern divisions could be moved to the Western Front. So this is all going on in the minds of planners and organizers, and especially Haig, during the spring and early summer of 1917. Now, of course, the ultimate objective of the Third Battle of Ypres still stood. And that was the attrition of German forces. At the very least, this offensive would continue to bleed the Germans of manpower. You see, one other thing must be said of Haig's hope for the offensive in the summer of 1917. At that time, he very much believed that the German army on the western front was close to collapse. Perhaps this relatively naive optimism was the ultimate fuel that motivated him to push for the Third Eap's offensive and keep pushing even after it had stalled. Regardless of what motivated him, Haig's objectives were frankly pie in the sky there was never any serious possibility of any of them being achieved, except, of course, for the attritional aspect of killing German soldiers. No serious breakout had occurred yet in the war, and the idea that one would now seemed highly unlikely, especially as the offensive wore on into the wet and cold months of autumn. To add to this, even the British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, questioned the offensive, You see, the Americans had just entered the war, and it seemed more prudent to wait until the AEF, that is the American Expeditionary Force, had arrived before conducting any major operations. What's perhaps even more important from a Canadian perspective was that the Canadian Corps was thrown into the offensive in October after it had become painfully clear that none of Haig's ultimate objectives would ever be achieved. In fact... By this point, it was obvious that the offensive was nothing more than an attritional battle, simply killing as many Germans as possible. So why ordered the Canadian Corps to capture Passchendaele Village? Well, two reasons. One, it stood on a ridge, and higher ground was both tactically and strategically valuable in a war that was fought on generally flat, open ground. If you had the higher ground, you could see your enemy moving. It was as simple as that. As well, the British felt that by capturing the ridge, the British forces and Canadian forces could be in a better winter position on drier high ground than in the lower, sopping wet, mud-caked, cratered fields of most of the Ypres salient. So, just to clarify, the offensive known as the Battle of Third Ypres was launched in July, and it was in October, months later, that the Canadians entered this large-scale offensive. And it should be noted that while the offensive was Haig's baby, so to speak, the Canadian Corps entered into the offensive as part of the British Second Army under General Herbert Plumer. Interestingly, when the Canadian Corps moved into the line in mid-October 1917, uh, they replaced the ANZAC Corps, In preparation for their attack, the Canadians occupied almost the same positions that 1st Canadian Division had held back in 1915 during their baptism of fire during the 2nd Battle of Ypres, otherwise known as the 1st Gas Attack. That certainly shows you how little the front had actually moved in years of warfare in the Ypres salient. The terrain that the Canadians occupied in October of 1917 was simply some of the worst conditions in the history of modern industrial warfare, and maybe some of the worst conditions in the history of warfare, period. The natural drainage of the landscape had been completely blocked due to months of shelling, and October was an unusually wet month that year. Thus, the battlefield was truly a quagmire, a lunar-like landscape of shell holes, mud, and water. Trenches could barely be constructed, and most soldiers were forced to live out of shell holes full of any combination of thick, sticky mud, stagnant water, gas vapors, decomposing body parts, excrement, large, carnivorous rats, and any number of diseases and bacteria. It was not uncommon for a soldier to fall into a shell hole and never be seen again swallowed by the mud, water, and earth of the Passchendaele terrain. Pieces of artillery, equipment, duckboards, trench systems, animals, and people all disappeared this way. Wallace Carroll of the 15th Canadian Infantry Battalion fought at Passchendaele, and this is what he had to say about the terrain. The mud and the water up there was terrific. But at the time we got as far as we did, we were all soaking wet. The shell holes were so close together and everyone was full of water. See, that was low-lying country up there, and the canals and the the, um, well, the dikes and that up there, you know, had all been cut, you see, and it overflowed into water, overflowed into the low country. And consequently, every shell hole up there, some shell holes up there, you could get out and paddle around in a canoe in them. And uh, they were quite big. You could get drowned up there quite easy if you happened to fall in them at nighttime. By the time the Canadians became settled in their positions around the 19th and 20th of October, the Canadian front line was not much more than a series of connected shell holes, the men often living for days at a time in water up to their knees or waists, Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The Canadian Corps plan of attack was designed by Corps Commander Sir Arthur Curry, who had been promoted to command the Corps shortly after the victory of Vimy Ridge. Sir Julian Bing, the man who commanded the Corps at Vimy Ridge, was promoted to commander of British 3rd Army. And if you want to know more about Vimy Ridge, please feel free to check out Season 2, Episodes 14 and 15. Now, Curry had grave reservations about the attack. The Corps was ordered to attack and capture Passchendaele Ridge and a village that sat on the ridge. The village was utterly destroyed, of course. Curry voiced reservations to Haig, and later historians would discover Curry thought the attack was reckless. Now, it was completely unusual within the BEF for a corps commander to voice displeasure with the orders of a field marshal of all people, but we need to understand one key thing. Currie was a Canadian, commanding a Canadian corps. He was politically answerable to Ottawa, not London. This gave the Canadian corps a unique political status as a semi-independent corps within the larger BEF. Curry thus had much more leeway to question, challenge, or even change orders from his British superiors, something that he did on several occasions. In the end, Haig was able to convince Curry that this operation needed to be conducted. Haig famously quoted, One day I will tell you the reasons why. Curry reluctantly agreed, but told Haig that this operation would cost him 16,000 casualties. Remember that number. The plan designed by Currie was essentially three short operational phases intended to achieve a series of limited objectives, one phase leapfrogging the other, culminating with the complete capture of Passchendaele Ridge and the destroyed ruins of the village that once sat atop it. Currie proposed for the attack to go in on 29th of October in order to ensure enough heavy artillery was in place to support his troops. Haig wanted the Corps to attack on 23rd October in order to assist a French attack farther south. General Plumer eventually set the attack for 26 October as a compromise between the two commanders. Now the nitty-gritty details of the battle are better left to the history books, as they constituted a series of hard-fought operations with extremely high casualties that slowly but surely pushed towards Passchendaele. You see, the Canadian Corps was the main attacking force, while supported by a variety of other formations, from the British 2nd Army to their left, that is their north, and British 5th Army to their right, that is the south. Phase 1 lasted from October 23 to October 26, while Phase 2 lasted from October 26 to October 31st. The first two phases saw the Corps achieve their objectives, but at this point there was a week-long pause that is after the end of the second phase, while Curry rested, refitted, and reorganized his exhausted Corps. The final phase of the battle was launched on November 6th and ended on November 10th, with the Canadians firmly atop their final objectives of the ridge and the ruined village of Passchendaele. The Canadian Corps was eventually pulled out of the front line by the 20th of November. Remember when Curry predicted 16,000 casualties? Well, of the nearly 30,000 casualties suffered by the British 2nd Army, the Canadian Corps suffered 15,654. Curry predicted the casualties that would be inflicted on his corps to within 346. A casualty is killed, wounded, missing, or taken prisoner. My great-grandfather, William Ponomarenko was one of those casualties. He went over the top in the first phase and was seriously wounded when a grenade exploded near him as he advanced over no man's land. Uh, He permanently lost his hearing for the rest of his life. Nine Victoria Crosses, the highest military decoration in the British Empire, were awarded to Canadians who fought at Passchendaele, a true testament to the ferocity of combat. No other battle in Canadian history would see so many VCs given to Canadians. In the end, none of Haig's lofty objectives would ever be achieved, except for killing lots of Germans. More operations would in fact be conducted by British units after the Canadians had captured the ridge, and even after the Canadians had been pulled out of the area. The front would once again bog down into a bloody stalemate. The Canadians, for their part, advanced a total of 1,200 metres. That's right, 1,200 metres for nearly 16,000 casualties. The Canadian Corps captured their objectives and further cemented their reputation as one of the BEF's elite fighting formations, but at a terrible cost. Here's what W.H. Jolie from the 4th Canadian Infantry Battalion said about his experience at Passchendaele. Well, that's was the most ghastly attack in which I ever participated because of the conditions. And the fact that men who were wounded uh, didn't have much of a chance to get out. And as they tried to get out, in many cases they just were drowned. Passchendaele not only encompassed the brutal realities of modern industrial trench warfare but highlighted the futility of many of the battles that were fought during the war. Now often people think of this battle and immediately think of the lions led by donkeys theory. That is the idea, the theory, that brave soldiers, the lions, were led by inept generals, donkeys. This myth is much more complex, as there were certainly a broad mix of great and poor leaders and weak and brave soldiers. For many, though, This battle soiled Haig's reputation as the biggest donkey of them all. Perhaps most tragically, all the territory captured by the Canadians would be taken back by the Germans only four months later during the German Spring Offensive. 15,654 casualties for 1,200 meters, all to be back in German hands by March. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on SoundCloud, and you can find us at our website, www.coolcanadianhistory.com, and of course you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. I want to thank you for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Take care.